Hello, welcome back to Projections Podcast. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Mary. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm very excited that you've introduced me to your friend, Vanessa. Oh, me too. Uh, hey, Vanessa. Hi, Mary and Sarah. <laughs> Everybody, this is a really special upload. It's a bonus episode. Sarah and I are going to chat to Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, who's a fantastic person on the psychoanalytic scene. Um, anyone who's interested in the topic of psychoanalysis ought to be following Vanessa on social media and reading her book. She's a psychoanalyst. She's a practitioner, actually. Um, she's an artist in her own right, um, doing f- fantastic collages. She's a podcaster, the host of the podcast, Rendering Unconscious. And she's just a wealth of knowledge, a real font of knowledge when it comes to all things psychoanalysis. Vanessa, I'd like to invite you to say a, just a little bit more, expand on what I've just said. I feel like I've really simplified it. You're such a polymath. <laughs> um, tell us more about your work. Sure. Well, as you said, I'm a psychoanalyst and I am a psychoanalyst in practice. Um, I'm also trained as a clinical psychologist and I recently relocated from New York City to Stockholm, Sweden. Um, I've had a bunch of different conferences that I've done throughout the years uh, since I finished my psychoanalytic training. Um, I started doing conferences on my own, and I did one on psychoanalysis and systemic violence and racism, and then moved into more creative conferences like psychoanalysis, art, and the occult, uh, which we'll talk about a little more later. So um, the reason that I love these kinds of areas is because I find psychoanalysis and the arts and magical practice all really um, useful and really helpful in my life. And so it's been really nice to see kind of the reaction that others are having and finding out that other people are finding all of these things useful as well. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Um, It's so cool. I've been meaning to get you and Sarah on an episode together to like for the three of us to kind of like exchange ideas about a film for such a long time. I've appeared on a, cu- a couple of times on your podcast, Vanessa, and I know that the occult and of course psychoanalysis is um, is something that is a, a point of interest for Sarah as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Can I say, Vanessa, I really like your voice, and voices are very important to me. Obviously, they're very important in a podcast setting, but I'm really drawn to people's voices. You have a lovely voice. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So yeah, I'm so excited that today we're going to be talking about the kind of relationship between what can be maybe described as the occult and its relationship to the unconscious and magic and witchcraft and the way that maybe, you know, it's interesting to think about psychoanalysis within a context like that. Um, And I know that it's something that can be really interesting Um, you know, for some people, even in their artistic practice and approach to work in general. Because when I think of witchcraft, I I can't help but think of uh, the practice of willing something into into reality, sort of manifesting, Mm -hmm. you know, putting out your intention and then kind of bringing it into reality through your will. You're really exercising your thoughts over you know, the manifestation of what you want. 
And I, I, I look at that as a really positive thing. You know, sometimes that can be seen as a negative, um, I think, just because it's the unknown and it's had a bad rap. But I really see it as a good thing. Do you guys have like any witchcrafty practices in your in your lives, in your day to day lives, Vanessa and Mary? I would definitely say it's a part of my day to day life. Um, as Mary knows, Mary came to one um, yoga class recently. One of my friends in LA does like a new moon, full moon yoga class ritual where we draw tarot cards and create sigils and set our intentions and then do this kind of simple yoga routine. Um, and things like that I find really useful and very grounding. And especially during this kind of pandemic time, it's been really a time for me to really turn inwards and to focus on the day-to-day and kind of more like things inside of my home and like my daily practices and getting uh, more focused on myself and doing my own yoga routines and my own magical practices. Um, I work a lot with ancestors, my ancestors. And um, so I guess that's called necromancy. And cool. Yeah. And there's like blood ancestors, which are your bloodline, whether they're your maternal or paternal grandparents and further back or parents um, and other blood relatives. But there's also something called adopted ancestors. And I found, especially with artists, a lot of artists pay tribute to kind of artists that came before that really influenced them. And in my way of thinking, those would be what are called adopted ancestors, like people that you kind of commune with, even though they already existed before through your artwork or magical practice. Wow, that's so cool. That's so cool. That's so cool. Mary, how about you? Yeah. Um, so some of the kind of witchy things that I like to do, uh, I do like tarot cards a lot. Um, I used to read them quite frequently for my friends, but then I kind of, did, you know, wasn't doing that as, as often. Um, so nowadays I quite like to do like every equinox or solstice, like in the change, changes of the season, I like to do a meditation and, uh, kind of try and focus on my goals, uh, express gratitude for the things I've done, and then kind of like ask for specific things. And it's a really kind of, uh, it, it's a very intentional meditation. So it's like goal oriented. Um, and actually, Sarah, you turned me on to a great practice last year. It was actually in September around this time last year where you showed me this great little practice and and I love doing that. It was so cool. Oh yeah, my new year spell. That's right. Um yeah, I do I I'm not sure no, I think I'm going to say that I still think it's a spell even though I kind of made it up um because I think that's allowed. Um yeah. and uh, I kind of like put it together with a lot of other things, but I've been doing it every September which I consider the new year because I'm quite attached to the academic year. I think um September feels like a nicer new year than than January generally. Um and I uh I bet it's quite like a lengthy one. I write down um, kind of intentions for the next 12 months based on the different zodiac signs and the the kind of areas of life that they look after um, write them down on paper and light candles for and kind of concentrate on each one play some music drink something nice I added a luxurious food this year so I got myself uh, champagne truffles and put them in the middle of this like kind of like altar of candles and 
paper, uh, put some nice flowers in there, some like things that I'd found wandering on the beach. Um, and I, yeah, I do it every September and uh, usually on the full moon, like the first full moon of September. And uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've really found it very helpful. Wow, that's so cool. It's lovely. And I think the best spells are the ones that you make up yourself. Because I mean, all of these books and everything that people use, those can be nice guides, especially when you're starting out to try to get ideas of what other people do. But also like psychoanalysis, like all the different kind of theoreticians, you know, they're also great to read when you're kind of starting out to see what other people came up with and what other people's ideas are. But I think at the end of the day, the goal is really to get your own individual style and to kind of see through your psychoanalytic or artistic or uh, witchcraft practice like what ends up coming out of you that's unique to you yeah I suppose oh, yeah. it's kind of like any other I suppose it's like any other creative practice and I think I probably consider like psych magic and psychoanalysis to be just as creative as any other like create you know artistic mm -hmm. practice mm -hmm. um, also wow. guys I think it's a new moon today isn't <gasps> it? yeah oh really I did not know that yeah, yeah. isn't that weird that's why it turned out to be today that we met, not last yeah. week. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is really cool. I, I feel so blessed. <laughs> Perfect way That's to amazing. spend the new moon. Yes. Thank you so much. Likewise. Likewise. And because, yeah, I mean, on this podcast, we like to sort of structure our conversations around a specific film title something we've both seen and try and kind of unpack psychoanalytic meaning from it. And we thought it would be cool to kind of invite you into this discussion with us and pick a film that touches on these kinds of different things, the occult, witchcraft, magic. Um, and we decided on the film Hereditary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Vanessa, had you seen this film before? I had, but I watched it again last night. It's ah. a really good film. It is a really good film. It is. I have to admit, I saw it when it first came out in the cinema. And on the first viewing, I wasn't that sold on it. I don't, I don't know about you. Did you feel the same way, Sarah? Actually, yes. Um, I think it was partly the way that film was marketed. It was marketed as, it, it, you know, it's sort of a little bit like Parasite. Like the first viewing couldn't possibly live up to the expectations. Yeah. Um, and that film has been marketed as as something very different to what it was, I think. Um, and I have to say, I wasn't that scared. And I think that I was preparing to be more scared than I'd ever been in my life. And that, so I kind of missed the re what the film really was. And I have mm. to say, I'm I'm actually really excited to be talking it talking about it with you two today because. I often like films a lot more once I've discussed them on the podcast. And um, no, I've seen Hereditary a few times and I, I think it's, it's really interesting. It's clearly a really well-crafted film, but something about it kind of fails to touch me, to, like, to really make me feel anything in a way that Midsummer really, really like, got to me immediately and I find it like, a really beautiful, really meaningful film. For me, hereditary, there's something kind of missing. Mm. Um, so I'm very excited to speak to both of you about it and know that you both really like it and obviously hear your kind of insights onto the occult elements. And I'm hoping that I will I will have kind of found that missing thing by the end of the podcast. So no pressure, guys. I just... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, it's kind of an extraordinary film in a way, just, just for the fact that it's Ari Aster's debut feature, which is kind of amazing, like mm -hmm. that he, he got these inc this incredible cast. I mean, Tony Collette, another one of these like genius Aussie actors. I don't know what's in the water in Australia, but it, they just keep producing these incredible actors, you know, like Nicole Kidman, uh, Naomi Watts, Heath Ledger, mm -hmm. R.I.P. And Tony Collette's just incredible in this film. And actually, I, I only recently uh, saw her in. I'm thinking of ending things that Charlie Kaufman film. Mm. Wow. Wow. That's a mind blower. That's for another, <laughs> that's for another discussion, but whoa, that, that was just completely uh, phenomenal. And she was great in that as well. And actually Gabriel Byrne, who's in Her hereditary. Um, I thought he was a perfect cast because I associate him so much with that HBO drama in treatment, you know, mm -hmm. where he plays a psychoanalyst. Have you guys seen that? Mm -hmm. No, but you've definitely told me about it before because I've watched clips of it based on your recommendation. I just think oh, of yeah. um, I just think of him in the '90s Little Women, though, oh, yeah. <laughs> with Winona Ryder. That's right. Oh my god, I forgot about that. <laughs> one of my one of my childhood crushes. Yeah, he's a pretty hot guy. He's that's for hot. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a great voice as well. Um, yeah. But it's just it's it's great that he's in this because it's he's sort of bringing in with him those sort of like associations with therapy and the things that we kind of might encounter in a therapeutic session. You know, he he, he sort of behaves in a very similar way to his character in, in treatment. So that's, that, that was the whole association for me. So I look at this film really as a representation of grief, which I think that Midsummer is as well. So it's safe to say that Ari Aster, the director, is that's one of his preoccupations or hangups as an artist. He likes to try and like represent that on film. And to have it like, just to give a little synopsis here for anyone out there who hasn't seen uh, Hereditary, it's about... Um, it's about a family who's grieving um, post the death of their the grandmother, um, so Tony Collette's character's mother, and then there's a second death in the family, the tragic, like pretty harrowing <laughs> death of the little sister, so so Tony Collette's character's uh, daughter, and she has this awful awful death scene um, where she's basically decapitated in. Um, when she's in the car, the moving a moving car, and it's like an accident. Her head hits a post, and she's decapitated. I mean, it's just that shocked me when I because I did not know that was going to happen. I hadn't read any spoilers or anything, and it really shocked me. And um, so, headlessness is kind of an interesting signifier right away in the story. And so, we have to see this kind of double uh, whammy of grief right away for this family and the way that they deal with that. And there's like a bit of tendency to blame each other for the accident. And then we, we discovered that the grandmother who was deceased was part of um, a coven of witches and they're conspiring to bring about the invocation of the God Paimon. <laughs> and they're conspiring to like one by one, compel the members of this family to kill themselves to bring about the invocation of the god Paimon through the 
body of the brother. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. They're reaching a little past coven, I would say, and maybe going more towards the cult. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> you're right. Actually, um, it's you're right to take umbrage with, with, with it's, it's not the witch's fault. It's definitely <laughs> like a sick cult for sure. Um yeah, so so firstly, kind of Vanessa, I wanted to kind of bring about a question right away. The thing that the burning thing that I had in my mind when I saw Her- Hereditary was how effectively the the medium of the horror film is utilized to express these really kind of uncomfortable, painful feelings connected with grief and loss. And I'm kind of also interested in the plot centering around the Toni Collette character's um, history of mental illness in her family and how, mm-hmm. like, the mother had, uh, um, this, what was it? Dissociative uh, disso- identity disorder. Dissociative identity disorder. The father was a schizophrenic or, or, or depressive, and then the brother was a schizophrenic who committed suicide. There was all these, like, horrific, horrific mental illnesses in her family. So it's kind of almost prompting the viewer to wonder – is any of this really happening in this family or is the mother just kind of uh, predisposed to be mentally ill? So, so therefore she's an unreliable narrator. I mean, we don't have to trust anything she says, which is kind of how their husband reacts to her. Um, And I just wanted to bring it to you, Vanessa, like how do you feel like this connects to the notion of grief, loss, and how these things are unpacked in the therapeutic session, and is the film a useful device to approach that? Um, well, I think it's really interesting. First of all, Sarah's reaction of being kind of detached from the film because um, I don't know. I don't. I remember vaguely when it came out, but I I don't follow films like in the theater uh, that well, so I don't remember how it was being promoted, and I didn't even really realize it was supposed to be a horror film. But I guess that seems clear. Mm-hmm. But I thought what they did do really well was kind of show. Uh, the disassociation of the son and how he was just so kind of checked out. And I felt like even though the mother was clearly like having really intense reactions, I felt like that feeling of that kind of dissociation that happens when you're grieving or when you're having a major depressive episode or something is what really came through clearly to me in, in these different characters was this kind of feeling of detachment. It's almost as if like, when a trauma happens, we, we can expect people to, to react differently. And one reaction, one response is a total dissociation. And I think it's a really common response. And also, you know, the whole idea of trauma is that it's something that's traumatic is something that we can't symbolize. So it's something that is like so intense that we can't like integrate it into our kind of narrative. And so it stays there with all of this weight. And clearly these episodes had that. And I think the fact that some people like, like Tony Collette's character in this have these like really kind of swinging reactions from on one hand being detached part of the time. And on the other hand being like really frantic the where she was mm. becoming really frantic and trying to solve things trying to get everyone to kind of come down and do the seance and like really trying to explain to her husband what was going on. It was like this attempt at like grasping onto something or like feeling like she was about to be able to kind of integrate this narrative or symbolize it in some way. But um, the whole, yeah, the whole problem with trauma is that you can't. So there's something that always eludes you. Wow. Wow. 
and and so what then is like um a recommended approach uh because obviously if you just continue to repress the trauma um the effect of dissociation and the and other psychopathologies might um occur so is the solution to just kind of consciously try and confront what happened well and keep talking about it i think that was another problem in this family right was that they couldn't communicate with one another um and like the son when he like bashed his face into the desk at school he like went from all of a sudden uh being totally dissociated to having these like really violent reactions and that's what happens when people can't speak like that's what happened to the original kind of uh, women who were suffering with from hysteria, you know, under Charcot and that sort of thing, was that the, these women weren't able yeah. to speak. And so when you can't speak, you start acting out or your body starts speaking for you and showing like, this is what's going on. Um, so I think, yeah, the best thing to do is to just speak about it as much as you can. Wow. 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 There's a lot there for me to reflect on. It's interesting. I do think it's, um, a sad thing in uh, the horror genre as far as going with the occult is that um, this guest that I had recently on Rendering Unconscious, Tiana Lee McQuiller talked about this as well, is that it would be great if there would be another side to kind of witchcraft and magical practice shown <laughs> besides this like horror, everything's going to go wrong in your life side. Um, because as far as I can tell uh, from practicing for you know my whole life, um, that's not really what happens. And actually, it really like helps you kind of get more in tune with your unconscious and helps you be more in line with what your actual desires are rather than feeling like you're always in battle with yourself. Like it's a really great way to tune into yourself and kind of your environment. And I think because people don't understand it and it's been so pathologized, there's all these like ideas that like, oh, if you you know, like, like Sarah was talking about before, like these books from like spells from books, like if you do this step wrong, then like all of this <laughs> catastrophic stuff is going to happen in your life. Or if you say this word wrong or don't pronounce it or um, be careful that a whole idea, like be careful what you wish for, because you might get it, but it'll be in this like horrible form. You know, that's not my experience at all. And I just find it really sad that like, we can't get another narrative going with like witchcraft and magical practice that isn't this kind of horror. Cause like the, the witch was another yeah. one. Are Ari Aster and what's his name? The guy who did the lighthouse and the witch, are they friends? Cause their films seem <laughs> similar to me. <laughs> Robert Eggers. Eggers. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, it. Robert Eggers. Yeah. You know, it's funny that, um, uh, something that you said like right at the beginning when you kind of like referred to, um, you sort of said, you know, occult practice and it, it sort of sparked off something in my head about it being something creative. It's almost, um, I think there is something about um, hereditary that I would agree with you. It, it sort of shows the horrifying side of um, being an artist as well, rather than mm -hmm. the kind of positive side of that. Because if you consider someone who's like an occultist as an artist, it's sort of the, the um, it's like the worst the worst side of art, the side where you're like a total narcissist and you just use everyone else for your creation, which is kind of what the grandmother does. Like you get the sense that she only had children so that she could kind of sacrifice them to this like ultimate cause. And at the same time, you know, Tony Collette's character is who is an artist, but doesn't seem to be like taking any 
doesn't seem to be taking a lot of pleasure in her work and doesn't seem to be using it for like very to very positive ends she kind of only seems to be using it for like almost evil by the end of the by the end of the film when she's kind of recreating these really harrowing upsetting scenes yeah, yeah that's kind of the true. mother the grandmother putting the grandmother's breast to the baby mm-hmm. that was really uh, disturbing from a psychoanalytic point of view <laughs> it's so yeah that's the thing right it, and that kind of proves what you just said sarah that like it was always the mother who like or the grandmother rather who was kind of grooming this family to fulfill this cult's goals and so when she offered the breast ultimately she was sort of like the one taking those decisions for the family she was the one kind of like feeding them and grooming them into this project for herself Mm. um yeah that makes so much sense actually um and it explains also like uh the fact that you know when Tony Collette is like dreaming and or she's sleepwalking or something and she has this dream that she goes into the son's bedroom and she said I didn't want to have you Uh, but she forced me. So I.e., she's talking about her. She's talking about her mother, his grandmother. Mm. And, and so we get this feeling that th- the members of this family are all compelled to do things that they don't want to do. They're just being completely manipulated. And this grandmother and this cult are really the puppet masters, which makes me think of er- pretty early on in the film when um, we're, the, the boy is in school He's taking like a classics lesson and the the teacher is talking about the gods and fate and destiny. And if, if, if our whole destiny is already mapped out, then we're just compelled to fulfill something that's already been written. Is that less or more tragic? You know, there's this question around tragedy. Um, And in a way, like someone answers in that classroom, like it is actually more tragic because, you never had a say, you know, you were just completely compelled and like, like an automaton, just programmed to fulfill some agenda. And that's how it feels in this family. Oh, it was just interesting when you, when you described the plot of the movie, you talked about how um, all the different family members were compelled to kill themselves. And I hadn't realized it till you were just talking now, but that the, that everyone in Tony Collette's family of origin also killed themselves, right? Or the, the grandmother, um, somehow convinced the the son hung himself inside her bedroom right because he said that she was like putting people other people inside of him uh, which also makes you think she was trying to put this demon king or whatever inside of him originally yeah and that it didn't work out and that that the the father starved himself so they both killed themselves as well and then tony collette survived and left that that maternal issue and started her own family but then everybody in her family ended up killing themselves also so that even shows like transgenerational transmission of trauma and how that sort of thing can work wow that is so true yeah it's interesting I feel like whoever made it was yeah. it was very psychologically savvy. My big problem with it was the end because I felt like they shouldn't have actually explained it at the end. 
I felt like he <laughs> should have just like looked at the treehouse with the red light or something. But I feel like them actually explaining at the end like ruined everything for me <laughs> because I don't, you know, I feel like if they just left it more open and let people wonder, like, was that all in Tony Collette's head? Was she insane? Did she commit suicide after this like psychotic episode? Or was there really a cult? Like, what was going on? I agree. I found it very like expositional that whole like pretty much the last 15 minutes like from her kind of finding the like instructions in the book in the box to like to them being like you're you know like they kind of explain to him like in the treehouse it's yeah I thought it was very expositional and to be honest I found that like self-beheading scene like totally ridiculous yeah I, I like everything about it like I don't I it like it was almost like a parody of horror movies that moment like even like her her like expression like the scary wide eyes and uh like the sort of like the the like how like com- like comedically fast she's soaring through her neck yeah um, yeah I couldn't I couldn't take it seriously um but- I actually found it creepier seeing those naked people like yeah. lurking around <laughs> exactly creepy but it also like makes me think like how ageist horror is because like if you want to creep out an audience all you have to do is like show someone like over 60 with their clothes off and Mm. it doesn't bode well for old age (laughs) (laughs) like you know you take your clothes off and be like no horror (laughs) like it's like no i'm still a person Yeah, exactly. Why why do uh, naked bodies above a certain age become abject? Like, what's yeah, that about? I don't you know. I don't know. It's something very deep seated. I think, and maybe yeah. maybe yeah. It's mortality and sexuality. Because if you mm-hmm. at least for women, if you're not reproducing anymore, able to reproduce anymore, but you're still able to be naked, some some people have a real hard time with people just being sexual for sexuality's sake. Absolutely. Yeah. I suppose that's because it also happens in Rosemary's Baby that cult also stands around naked and Mm -hmm. chance and like it's framed in a very kind of way that is deliberately unattractive and in in the witch when um, like she first appears as like the the actual witch first appears like a beautiful young woman and then she like suddenly turns into like an ugly old woman and it's like no horror she's not she's not hot like get out of there she's not hot (laughs) it's really true I had a bunch of issues with the witch as well but that's a different movie Yeah, it's true. So I guess in a way, it's like um, we we end up kind of looking at this family as you know this her- family and her- hereditary as these kind of unsuspecting, vulnerable people who have no idea they're being manipulated through uh, the will of this cult, and they're they're kind of in a way just uh, sort of in parallel with the little houses that Toni Collette's character designs, like she sits there and she kind of painstakingly uh, creates these little miniature scenes, you know, mm-hmm. um, these uh, these moments and these scenarios inside a house. And that's exactly what these people are doing, you know, with this family. It's like the family is just a play thing. Then I'm wondering in reference to that, you know, what are we really doing in psychoanalysis? Are we not in the psychoanalytic practice kind of invoking 
these scenes and invoking little kind of smaller scale trauma in a very deliberate way for a very conscious purpose, or maybe sometimes unconscious, I don't know. And I kind of, I've kind of always wondered whether psychoanalysis is a type of magic or a type of witchcraft where you're kind of looking back and looking forward and trying to kind of construct these narratives that feel very painstaking and very intentional. And is there some magic to that? Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I think like Winnicott is really great in this area to understand the psychoanalytic kind of um, session in this idea of like play. He talked about play a lot because he worked with children. But I think magic is, you know, a form of play. They're very similar. Playing is a form of magic, like imagining yourself in these different roles or putting things together in a new way. And, you know, I think a lot of I mean, in my opinion, like magic, that's why I said like paranormal isn't the best way to describe it earlier, because um, I feel like it's very natural. And I think it's just just because we don't understand how it works doesn't mean it doesn't work. And I think people we have a very limited understanding of ourselves and the world around us, clearly. And I think people should just kind of learn that and accept that that we don't really understand what's going on and we can mm. have hypotheses and ideas but at the end of the day we're kind of all making everything up as we go along and that's okay because what do you expect from us we're like on tiny beings on this planet in like it's not even the universe anymore it's like multiverses or whatever they say <laughs> so it's like how, how should we know what's going on um, but I think the psychoanalytic space can give us this kind of safe space where we can play with ideas and put on different personas. And I think since the internet has become such a part of our lives, I think that that's why younger generations are more mm. comfortable with magic and they're more comfortable with this idea of role playing and they're more comfortable with, with playing with their identities because a lot of people put on different identities and can play around with kind of different ways of being online. Um, and I think that's been really great for people as a whole. Wow. What do you guys think this thing? I mean, I know you talked about it a little bit in the beginning, Mary, because of Gabriel Byrne's previous roles. But what do you guys think the significance of having a therapist in the story was? It kind of like made me think a little bit about Antichrist and how he's a he's like a therapist with who is also <laughs> in a family dealing with trauma and how that kind of pits like his sort of like masculine science against like the uncontrollableness of nature so what do you think what do you guys think it is the purpose of the husband being a therapist in this film I definitely thought of Antichrist when I was watching this film and Carl and I <laughs> talked about that um that they were very similar in that way of course uh what's his name William Defoe Wilhelm Defoe was more like active trying to like change his wife and change and like really doing cbt with her um whereas uh, i feel like gabriel byrne took a more like more psychoanalytic stance and like she, he kind of like let her do what she wanted and just tried to guide her a little bit until the very end when he was like i'm not you know i don't think it's good to just play along with you anymore like <laughs> i'm gonna call the police you know and then he caught on fire <laughs> <laughs> but i think i think it was definitely it seemed to me 
you know, to speak to kind of her trauma, her psychology, that she married a, a therapist, you know, mm-hmm. after having a mom with dissociative identity disorder. And I mean, we could argue about what that is also. But um, yeah, I feel like they kind of let him be this kind of analytic position where you weren't really sure. He took the, he, he helped the viewer take the stance of like kind of engaging with it, but also being a little bit distanced as to just be observing and really wondering like what is going on here and not like buying into one character's narrative all the way from any perspective. I think that's a really good interpretation that Gabriel um, Gabriel Burns psychoanalysis versus Willem Dafoe CBT because that's definitely <laughs> that's definitely what they're doing and also. Um, it's interesting you say that it sort of speaks to her um, like trauma that she went out with him because apparently in early versions of the script she's supposed to be his ex-patient mm. and that's how they um. met um, but I'm glad they took it out because that's very unethical yeah they yeah. love to make therapists unethical also in media <laughs> can we also like witches and, and therapists are always doing crazy things <gasps> right I I'm like I'm starting to get like full-on like I'm starting to get really nervous about therapy in general because of the amount of rogue therapists on tv and in the movies like Mm. everywhere you look every every if you have a therapist they'll be rogue they'll be doing something like totally crazy and unethical like that what was that one uh Mary (laughs) you told me to watch with Naomi Watts Oh gosh, um, Gypsy. Gypsy. Oh yeah. Ah, like... <laughs> yeah, she she should be really like her license needs to be revoked immediately. <laughs> like, <laughs> but that is that is such a good point. Like, I think I wonder why that is that. Like therapists, you're completely right. Therapists and witches, they're like so demonized in the media, and I wonder what it is about. I, su- I suppose that's that does like imply there is a kind of connection about things that that work but we don't understand why they work so we feel like they had there has to be some kind of like some kind of fraud or imposters or or like some kind of dark darkness behind them yeah it's just the unknown isn't it it's like not you know let's say from the outsider's perspective looking in um it all looks a bit like hocus pocus like what are you doing you know what what are you invoking actually Mm. that's the thing right so like with this cult um they're invoking the demon the eighth demon of hell (laughs) but in in psychoanalysis you know you you run the risk of invoking your own past or some part of yourself that you haven't confronted and that must be bad because we don't know what that's going to be. And we like to reassure ourselves and we like to tell our, you know, sort of self-soothe and like tell ourselves that like we're fully in control. But of course the unconscious dictates that our conscious personality is only like a, the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And people are scared of what they don't understand and we don't understand them. Um, like people always get anxious when there's change or transition it's just always like fear of the unknown Um, and that's why a lot of times people will hold on to their symptoms or patterns like really tightly because at least it's familiar and so if it's familiar then it must be safe but of course that can really uh, be harmful for us in the long run absolutely one of the things I went through phases when I was 
I've been through all sorts of different phases with psychology and magic. Um, but the one, the point when I decided I was just going to like full on go into magic and witchcraft was because there, there was a phase when you start, when you start noticing that it works, then you get a little anxious, like, Oh, this actually works. And then um, that's a little bit scary. Like you said earlier, like, well, who am I to have this kind of power? Who am I to be able to like manifest my intentions in the world? And then I realized like, well, advertising agencies are doing this all the time. Corporations are doing this all the time. Um, so you're going to get influenced. And why is it when, why is it when individuals are trying to influence events in their own lives? It's like bad or selfish or dangerous, but like larger corporations and structures can do it all the time. And that's just totally fine. You know, I feel like all of these narratives um, are really meant they end up stripping us individuals from our agency and our autonomy. And they've made us think that like, we have to always look to the authority figure for what's best for us rather than trusting our own intuition or our own sense of what, what should we should be doing. Oh, that's really good. <laughs> that was very rousing. I really like, woo, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and it's just like what you said really reminded me of those scenes where they do the seances and like the exact thing that you said happened like they they made something happen and then got scared and that's mm. kind of how everyone had everyone's reaction to their first seance was in the film that the you know the second something began happening it was terrifying mm. yeah exactly there's some people i know that even say like magical practitioners i know that people uh, are actually really afraid of like their power, like the amount of power that people actually have to change things. If we really like, we're able to kind of harness our energy and our creative, our creative energy and our autonomy. But we're so like programmed to kind of give up our agency um, that yeah, we're really not using our ourselves as much as we could. And that's sort of what happens to to you know Annie the main character is like she describes giving up her agency at numerous points you know she said she didn't want to have this first child but she was like made to and then there's actually a moment where she says you know I I think it's when she's in the support group and she says um I gave her my daughter like Mm -hmm. which is like such a quite weird thing to say about but yeah she very much like she's kind of doomed she's kind of doomed because she like succumbs to this like powerful influence all the time rather than makes her own decisions that's so true you're right and the way she said it also it was she just kind of like randomly mentioned it Mm. a lot uh, as she was listing all of like the mental afflictions in her family and she just randomly said i gave her my child and it's like that is almost even more creepy how it's just kind of so readily accepted in her own discourse that she's fulfilling this project, this, this kind of ulterior agenda, ulterior motive. Um, And you know what else? I just, I was just thinking that it kind of works both ways, doesn't it? It's, you can have um, the kind of, influences of your unconscious governing and dictating your behavior without you knowing it. Um, but at the same time, there's al- there's always a possibility to introspect and try and create some form of autonomy uh, through that process of the unknown. So the, the kind of magical properties of psychological transformation are always available to us. It's just that we're not really, as a society, 
educating people about the psyche in a meaningful way. Mm. And so because of that, we all kind of fall into this um, pattern of allowing our, our unconscious traumas and difficult elements of our past to kind of dictate us and throw us into this pattern of repetition which seems so irrational to us, but we're, we're compelled to continue it. And in that way, we are like those Greek, you know, ancient Greek characters where it, it feels like we're predestined to continue doing what we're doing, despite knowing that we don't want to do it. It's irrational. And it feels like destiny, but it's just, you know, it's just because we haven't fully self-reflected in a meaningful, substantial way. So that's why it's tragic. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That I think you're exactly right with it feeling like destiny. And I also uh, think a lot of times when people like fall in love, sorry to be negative about love, but, <laughs> but I think a lot of times uh, that feeling that of recognition with somebody that you fall in love with is a lot of times that you just both have unconscious kind of transferential patterns from your childhood that fit together in a way that makes you both like instantly recognizable to each other because you've both been in a similar pattern before and again people love that familiarity and so as soon as you get that kind of familiar unconscious to unconscious kind of moment then people think that they're in love but a lot a lot of times um, it's just you end up enacting an old family traumatic pattern that you haven't kind of worked through yet. I love that. I mean, that's uh, I'm quite familiar with that concept because I think Alain, Alain de Botton has a talk about it, and he says, mm. like, yeah, he says that he says people think they want happiness, but they just want familiarity. Mm. Um, and I suppose that in if you take that back to the film, that explains why she why she married a psychoanalyst because they're kind of like regarded as like such authority figures. And, you know, she has this, like, overbearing mother and then she goes, like, from one, like, authority figure to another. Mm. Yeah, and her saying that she, you know, that she didn't didn't seem to be fully in control of her act of, like, giving this child over to her mother and having children in the first place just, I guess it seems that her brother had committed suicide and then she kind of ended up having a boy to kind of replace him under her mother's desire or something. But, um that you know the original desire that we have when we're born is our parents desire that's what makes us exist and it's through the psychoanalytic process you can see how you can kind of parse apart what is what are these expectations that have been placed upon me by others by my parents or society or other people that I know or have come in contact with throughout my life and what is actually kind of what I feel about myself or the world around me and it takes a long time to parse that apart because these ideas uh, that are put upon us are so deeply ingrained. Wow. Wow. I'm kind of speechless because I just <laughs> recognize so much of what you're saying. Like I, it, it makes so much sense to me. And that's why I love the cinema because the cinema really affords me a kind of platform or like, like a kind of psychic workshop to kind of work through a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And then you have the podcast where you can process the experience from the cinema so that yeah. that's where the speech element comes in right I think it's great 
Yeah. Sarah's my analyst. Sarah's my analyst. <laughs> I like I love being analyzed because I I actually come from my father's a psychologist and actually my boyfriend's a psycho the training in training psychoanalyst. Um and I have to like I'm gonna like make a really like I'm gonna make a really in therapy confession. Like I love I love being analyzed because it makes me feel special. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so like you know when the first the first time Vanessa was like you know something that Sarah was saying uh, like and I was like oh, it's happening. <laughs> I love that. Oh, it's terrible! It's terrible. Um, although I was when I was watching it this time, I you know that meal scene that they have together where they're like sitting there in silence and this you know this terrible thing has happened and it's just before they have this big like blow up argument. And I was yeah. just thinking, I know like it can it can't happen in film because it just wouldn't bring the plot to the point where the plot's supposed to be. But I was just like, why the hell aren't these people in therapy? Like they you know the daughter their daughter's been decapitated like. Sure, you know, like surely they all need to go to family therapy, and and I, I suppose um, maybe Gabriel Byrne couldn't go to therapy because he was a therapist. Does that happen if you know it so much about, if you know enough about therapy that you can't attend therapy yourselves? Um, it can be hard. I've I've had a lot of different therapists, and um, I've been through three three analyses, and mm. after my last analysis. I had I did I was at a point where I just like know the theory so much that it was like I knew mm. what she was gonna say based on what <laughs> I was saying it was just like all so prescribed you know and I was just like oh I can't even listen to an analyst anymore um and so after that analysis I was like I'm just gonna go to a regular old therapist and just like I basically told her like I I know how to do this I've been doing this a long time I just need you to like not talk and let me kind of t- use this space to like talk talk myself through some things, um, which I don't think she liked. <laughs> and she couldn't, she couldn't help but keep inserting herself, you know? It was so frustrating. Wow. Um, so I think that can happen. And I think it's really hard to find a good analyst. And honestly, if I hadn't wanted to become an analyst and had to be in the analysis for a certain amount of time in order to be an analyst, I don't think I would have finished um, psychoanalysis I don't think I would have like saw it through I think I would have quit because I found my analyst so irritating (laughs) Um, at least my training analyst I had I was fortunate enough that I I brought myself to analysis when I was in grad school um, and I saw an analyst who was a candidate in training and he was the best one by far and I think it's because he was in training so he was a young analyst and he just you know, I guess when you're a young analyst, you, you're more nervous to say things. And he just was really quiet. And that's really what I needed. And just every time he actually said something, it was so like poignant and spot on. And that's like how I imagine analysis should be. But it's really hard to find that. Wow. That's yeah, I, I kind of I very similar experience to you, Vanessa, in terms of my how I've responded in analysis. Um, I, I've I've only been in one analysis in my whole life in therapy, just the one time. And it was not a good experience for me at all. Um, I'm not going to get into like the drama of it, but the gist of it really was that I think I'm just not really cut out to be in analysis as crazy as that might sound. Cause I love the theory. Like I'm, com- you know, I'm a faithful follower of Freud. I love the theory. I'm constantly like trying to learn more about it. 
but just the practical element does not appeal to me. I think because I don't like talking about my problems. Like I'm, I, I really, I like talking. I'm very chatty, but I don't like to dwell on the past when it comes to myself. I just don't think it helps me. Um, and I, I just find it like irritating and, I think that when I realized that, I realized that I would never be a good psychoanalyst because if I'm in a session and people are telling me difficulties are going through, I just don't think I'd be like, I'd have the decorum that you would need. But theory, I'm all down. Like I love, I love like transmitting or, or, or kind of applying my knowledge of the theory onto cinema because I feel like it's like a neutral space. Um, and it's no, it's no one's subjectivity except my own. It's just my own projections. And I, I feel happy with that. Like, I'm content with that. And you're very good at it. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's great. And Freud, you know, Freud did his own analysis. So I yeah. think self-analysis is totally possible. Yeah, I definitely self-analyze. I'm constantly analyzing my own dreams and uh, kind of watching my own reactions to things. I like, it's very Zizekian kind of, I realized, uh, I've become really interested in ideology and that kind of thing. And you know what? It's funny, as as just hearing you guys speak before, I was, I was reminded that Tony Collette, because um, Sarah and I were both really into astrology. Sarah actually runs... Um, a, a film club called Zodiac, Ooh. which is really, really popular. Um, and we love kind of also kind of speculating about people's signs and everything. So Sarah and I are both Scorpio. Um, I know that Vanessa, you're a Cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony Collette is a Scorpio. <laughs> that makes so much sense, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I like I love cancers though. I'm very like we're water, we're both water signs. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah. both uh both like super soft on the inside and hard on the outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and you'll love this then Sarah as well because my mother is an artist and um she she's like kind of an old hippie and uh had her own astrologer and like when I was born she had my natal chart done and that sort of thing but of course when I became a teenager I was like you know stop it with that stuff I don't want to hear it mom whatever she's so new agey it was like really (laughs) irritating but what actually brought me back around to paying attention to astrology was being a psychologist because I'd be (laughs) sitting in my office and um listening to people talk and it's so amazing to say say I'd say like eight or ten people in a day everyone's kind of talking about the same trends of like emotions coming up on the same days and they were also a lot of the time things that I was kind of feeling myself as well and then because my mom has this astrologer that I've known my entire life she's like my grandmother um I always she does like a class on the new and full moon every two weeks so I've always like listened to her class and then I'd hear her talking and it would she'd be talking about the same kind of thing that the patients were talking about. And I was like, there's really something to this. Like people are going through things collectively a lot more than people realize. Oh my God, that's so cool. That's so cool. And Ari Astor is a cancer, the director of Hereditary. He seems like he's interested in interiors. And actually thinking about Midsummer, because Vanessa, you know, Sarah and I were, uh, this is a great episode to segue us from the series we just finished on work and money our next one 
which is going to start a fortnight after this episode launches, uh, is on cults on film. Yes. And we're going to be tackling Midsummer. Uh, it's an obvious one, of course, in the program. But it just occurred to me that, of course, it makes sense. The ending of uh, Hereditary and the ending of Midsummer have something in common there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and he seems to be... I, 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 I don't know anything about Ari Aster. I feel like he's a very enigmatic guy, which I like, actually. I like directors who seem to be a little bit mysterious. We don't know that much about them. Um, and it just makes me think that maybe he is... He, he, he understands the value of ritual and how the cinematic medium is a ritual. It's a, it's a kind of ritual of magic, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, that's true. And you're right. He did seem to just come out of nowhere, Ariaster, <laughs> like fully formed. Um, <laughs> totally weird. But I'd also really like it, Mary, if you would tell me the star signs of every director we cover, because <laughs> I think that's like it's super pertinent to the conversation. Noted. Absolutely, I would love to. <laughs> I think that's a great. I think that's a great addition to the pod. Yeah, especially as we start with the cult, the cult series. Start adding yeah. My husband Carl is Swedish, and he said that a lot of the stuff that I was like, "Oh, that that's ridiculous." In Midsummer, he's like, "No, that that's actually pretty accurate." Like he said, it, it's true that like. Um, this idea of like people throwing themselves off the cliff and committing suicide when they reach a certain age. He's like, yeah, people used to do that. Like to him, it was all like really kind of normal. <laughs> that was interesting for me to learn. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Yeah. Wow, what an attitude towards death. That's so interesting. Yeah, no, they're very pagan here. It's really interesting. It's like coming from America, which is so like evangelical, kind of like hyper Christian. Um, and then coming here where people are like really secular. It's the last country in Europe to like officially become Christian. And they fought the Christian kings for like four or 600 years or something. They kept like fighting and going back and forth from Christian kings to pagan kings. So they like really fought having having the Christian takeover here. And they're so secular and all of their holidays, like they celebrate midsummer, they celebrate all the like solstices and equinoxes. Um, they they have uh, Saint Lu- Lucia Day where these girls, all these blonde girls walk down the street with candles in their hair. It's like it's very pagan still. It's really interesting to see. Oh, candles in their hair. That's so cool. Yeah, they wear like candle crowns, real candles. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. I really want to visit Sweden. I've never been before. Yeah, me too. That sounds amazing. Maybe we'll come and see you. That'd be great. It's really refreshing. <laughs> it's really refreshing not to have the uh, Christian perspective being so prominent. Mm. Wow, I love it. Um was there any before we start asking you about like your cinema taste Vanessa did you guys have any other things that you wanted to share about the movie or about magic and psychoanalysis no I think Um, I'm done (laughs) I could say that the since you're going to call the episode the psychoanalysis and the occult I could mention Mm -hmm. this book that actually inspired the conference that I did um in 2016 it ended up being called psychoanalysis art and the occult and I, I tie the arts in there not only because it's part of my practice but also it's like so much more palatable when you put things in the realm of the arts it's like if you're just talking about psychoanalysis and 
you know, witchcraft or the occult, then people are like, whoa, Vanessa, what are you doing? You know, but then if you throw arts in here, it's like all of a sudden everything's kind of okay. Cause if art artists can do things like practice magic, that like other people can't do <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the public <laughs> ideas. Um, but there's this great book from 1953 by George DeVoe called Psychoanalysis and the Occult, where he collected together all of these papers um, from Freud and other early analysts about occult topics like, let's see, Freud, uh, a premonition, premonitory dream fulfilled, premonitions and chance, psychoanalysis and telepathy, dreams and telepathy, the occult significance of dreams and dreams and the occult. Those are all Freud papers. Um, and, you know, one of the things Stephen Reisner, who's a psychoanalyst and activist um, from New York, he gave a talk on psychoanalysis and the occult and particularly like dreams and, and the Freudian unconscious. And he talked a lot about how Freud, um, he actually practiced these kinds of telepathy experiments with, with his daughter, Anna Freud and with Sandor Ferenzi. And he did it. There's, there's writings of it in his letters and late into his life. So I think what happened is that, you know, when Freud and Jung split, the, the the Jungians kind of got all of the occult new age witchcraft areas and the Freudians really distanced themselves from that publicly but I think privately Freud was still continuing these experiments and I think anybody who's been in a relationship with someone has had that experience where you finish each other's sentences or somebody <laughs> calls right when you think of them you know there's some sort of connection yeah. between people's consciousness that you know uh popular medicine doesn't really account for but I think everyone's experienced that and I think that sounds like what he was kind of playing with through these kind of telepathy experiments was that idea that when you are close to someone you do have that kind of psychic connection um, that can't really be explained so I think that's really interesting and I think I think that a lot's gotten lost but that's with the Jungians kind of getting that territory mm. because like I, I'm not Jungian at all. I, I mean, I think he's interesting in his own way and I think his ideas are interesting, but I don't find them useful mm. for psychoanalytic practice. I'm much more Freudian Lacanian. Um, mm. And I think that, you know, you can come at these topics from a Freudian Lacanian or any other theoretical point of view. You don't have to be Jungian. So <laughs> Wow, that is so true. And it's, it, you're right to kind of dispel, you know, disabuse people of that myth that, um, you know, these things are so neatly compartmentalized. Uh, if anything, what you just said, in terms of the link between the occult and these kind of unexplained phenomena and Freud's interests, that kind of explains the the producers and the showrunners for the Netflix Freud series and why they went down the avenue they did. Yeah. Um, so for our listeners, uh, I was actually lucky enough to review this series with Vanessa on her, on her podcast, Ren Rendering Unconscious. So you can go and listen to that episode, but it makes sense. You know, it's sort of uh, to situate that compulsion to really kind of in a way be open to, 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 possibilities that are maybe outside of your reach and kind of be open to receive explanations that you still haven't confronted or you haven't encountered. 
Exactly. And isn't that what a good scientist should do? We should we shouldn't Absolutely. approach things thinking that we know everything about them. We should always be approaching things with like curiosity and wonder um, and learn learning something new because, you know, we can't understand everything. So we should always be learning. Um, and that's a great point that the, the Freud Netflix guys brought Freud back. Uh, in line with the occult because that's kind of what I was trying to do with my conference was kind of mend oh. mend that split that had happened um, and kind of kind of bring psychoanalytic thinking back together more in a constructive way rather than having these certain like whole areas of study be cut off. Wow. Oh my God. That sounds like an amazing, like it must've been an amazing conference. I'm sorry I missed it. Yeah, it was pretty magical. I must say what, what else is, I'll just say this too, with, you know, I do a lot of cut-ups and collages and I, I have um, a friend named Caitlin Foisey who I do a lot of cut-ups and collages with and Brian Geisen and, and William Burroughs, when they did cut-ups together, they called it the third mind. So they said like they have their own, own individual selves and then when they'd work together with cutting up um, words and, and sounds and film, that, that it kind of created this third mind or third being that had its own life. Um, and Caitlin, Caitlin helped me understand kind of the magical properties of cut-ups a lot better um, when she was explaining one, one situation that involved her. But for me, where it really became clear was that um, everybody that was at that conference were all people's writing that I use in my cut-ups. And of course, it's because I like their work and that's why I invited them. But it was kind of interesting to think of it the other way around in that like I had all these writers and artists and magicians and analysts that I would cut up their writing and mix them together in a box and like make them say new things. And then all of a sudden, like all the people from those writings were like there in the room and talking to each other and creating new ideas like in vivo. So that was really magical in itself. That's amazing. It does sound amazing. Please, maybe uh, you'll share another one of those conferences one day and we'll be able to attend in post-COVID. Yeah, that was in <laughs> London. That yeah. was actually in London. Oh, sounds we'll amazing. do another one when, when we can all <laughs> gather again. Um, well, Vanessa, before we finish, I just kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about, I mean, I should, probably should have asked you this at the beginning, but... Um, you know, we've talked, you've talked a little bit about, you know, the, like the occult fitting into your practice and now your art and obviously psychoanalysis, but what about film? How does that kind of play a part in your life and your work? Well, I've become interested in film more recently because my husband is a filmmaker among other things. And so that's, what's really gotten me interested in like film history and film culture and, um, I, it's, it's actually made film and media much more enjoyable because before, um, like I said, I never really paid attention to what was in the theaters. I would just kind of go, like to me to go to the movies was just because I wanted to have a little relaxing time off and like see a story, you know, just like to be entertained and kind of shut my mind off from work and other things. That's how it used to be. So like when I lived in Manhattan, I would just walk over to the cinema and just see whatever whatever they had, you know? Um, mm. and then when I got my private practice office in Soho, I was right next to Film Forum, which showed all these amazing like older films. And so when I'd have a break or after work, I'd go over to Film Forum and see what they had showing, which then kind of upped my level <laughs> of like cultural film watching um, from there. But then since I've met Carl, um, since he makes films and of course since I moved to Sweden and Ingmar Bergman is like the master here and uh, I guess mm. um, 
he kind of like hazed me basically and like we watched like this whole box of Bergman over the winter last year and it was just like so incredible so incredible I actually had to take breaks I was like we can't watch another Bergman today like like they're really intense you know they're really intense amazing films but now that I'm starting to like watch more and more films um like understanding the actors and like seeing the same actors in different places and like seeing the same films um by different directors like understanding it more in a context has made it so much more enjoyable than like just seeing one-off film here and there um so it's really been growing I guess the last like five years um yeah Mm. I don't you you two are definitely the experts (laughs) here (laughs) I I think it's pretty cool to just be starting out on your film journey or like you know to have recently started out Yeah. yeah definitely I really like it and I think it I guess it's also been great work since we're all having to work from home. I've just been watching a lot more films and I'm trying to learn. Well, I'm not trying. I'm learning Swedish slowly. Ah. Um, So I've been watching like Swedish films with English subtitles or sometimes Swedish films with Swedish subtitles um, just to hear the language more because I don't go out and interact with anybody out in the world. So that's been really fun as well. Like, I, I will admit this to you. I just finished the last um, Beck film with Gunvald Larsson's character. And um, that, I watched 32 Beck films. Martin Beck, he's a detective. Um, I've watched 32 Beck films in since two Mondays ago. So Carl's like, oh, you're watching another Beck? I'm like, it's my homework. My homework. So I'm studying the language. <laughs> And the culture, because you learn. I actually think I've learned most about Swedish culture from watching Swedish films. You learn mm-hmm. so much about their, their kind of mentality. I can see the Swedish mentality, like at play in the characters in the films. That would be kind of yeah. that would be quite a cool book, like learning Swedish, like learning Swedish culture through films. For yeah, I, I am doing a psychoanalytic perspectives on Bergman book, so oh, that's going to happen. Um, oh wow well let us know we'll plug it on our socials when it comes out (laughs) absolutely (laughs) I mean you've been so supportive of us of our podcast uh we're so so appreciative of spreading the word about us and everything so we're so so grateful for that but you're you're great I love to (laughs) They're great things. And it's really great too because like when I share your like your courses, your projections courses in the podcast on the psychoanalytic listserv, the Umbahagen listserv, people write, Thanks for uh always showing us these because these have been really great. So I get like good feedback on it. Yeah. So that's that's good for you to know. Well nice. Yeah, the analysts are loving it. Well, I'm I'm absolutely honored. I'm honored to have you on this episode and just grateful for all of your friendship and support. And it's it's so fun and interesting to be talking about this topic with you. Yeah, it is fun. I'm so glad we finally made it happen. <laughs> Thank you. So for everyone listening, don't forget to follow Vanessa um, on uh, all her socials. She is just such a kind of wealth of knowledge in this area. Um, she's at Rawson underscore uh, on Twitter. And is, is Twitter your favorite platform, You would, would you say? Twitter is my favorite. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, but you're also good value on Instagram. It's the same handle, Rawson under, underscore. Um, and yeah, definitely check out Rendering Unconscious. Um, 
and thank you so much for joining us once again. It was so thank nice to meet you, Vanessa. Hopefully meet you in person one day. Yes. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.